Welcome to Soul Talk, soulful conversations exploring who you are, why you're here, and how to live your most authentic life. My name is Coop Blackson, nationally best-selling author of You Are The One, transformational teacher, and your host. I invite you to subscribe to the Soul Talk podcast for weekly inspiration from me, where I will share with you some powerful ideas, thoughts, and practical life wisdom to help you live life more fully, freeing yourself from your past, reclaiming your power, and living your true life's purpose. You can also go to www.coopblackson.com, enter your name and email to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment. Let's get started with Soul Talk. Welcome, folks. Welcome to another very special episode of Soul Talk podcast. Coop here. I'm really uh, looking forward to today's episode. Uh, We've had some, as you know, amazing guests in the fields of health and relationship and spirituality and personal growth. Today's guest, I think, uh, is going to be equally amazing. I had the opportunity to meet him a few times once a few years back in uh, in Boulder at a conference conference called Success 3.0 and uh, really, really brought some unique insights to to, to the audience and uh, just uh, had, had another chance to spend a, a little time with him as part of a movie on a panel in uh, Park City, Utah at Sundance Festival. We're part of a movie called We Rise and Really loved his perspective and just just brilliant human being, very humble, had tremendous uh, compassionate heart, and just thought he'd be amazing uh, to have a conversation with. He's worked with a wide worked in a wide range of roles, from astrophysical researcher to Fortune 500 consultant, corporate executive. Uh, played a significant role in uh, leading and developing projects uh, on a global reach, Microsoft Outlook, which you've probably heard of, Yahoo Search. Uh, most recently served as head of product experience, Google X, developing technology for things such as Google Glass, Google self-driving cars, and uh, his current focus is developing, delving into human development issues, social entrepreneurs around the globe, which I think many of you, uh, some of you at least, would consider yourselves, and uh, just a brilliant human being. Welcome, Tom Chi. Welcome to Soul Talk. Hey, cool. Thanks for coming. Hey, on, am I man. supposed to say more Listen, stuff? Okay, nice. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. It was great seeing you in uh, the Weedwise uh, premiere and had fun with you, fun listening to you. I think you have some some interesting, unique uh, perspectives for sure. And I'm just curious, you know, I was, I was reading your bio and there's so many different things it seems like you've done. And I'm just curious, especially for those that may not uh, know of you, um, some of my audience, I, I'd love for you to share, like, as a kid, what I mean, what were you like? I mean, how, how does one even study, train, you know, prepare to do some of the things you have delved into? I mean, like, tell us a bit about yourself. You know, as a kid, were you, were you always interested in this stuff? Were you, I mean, were you just gifted? Were you a genius? I mean, it's, uh, is, is it possible for people who who, let's say, aren't tech-savvy to develop some of the skills you develop? I mean, I have a whole bunch of questions, but maybe take us back to the beginning. Tell us a bit about yourself and what we like as a kid. Yeah, I think that um, one of the major features of my childhood is that I was born in Taiwan, and then my parents and uh, whole family moved to the United States when I was just two years old. So that was before I had very many language skills in Taiwanese or Mandarin. 
And so I didn't really speak those or read or write those particularly well. Um, and then when I got to the U.S. and my parents were working a bunch of jobs, so they they weren't necessarily around to go teach me how to read, write. And actually, they didn't know English either, so how are they going to do that? So by the time I actually got to school, basically illiterate. Like, I couldn't read, write, speak. I could understand some words uh, in English. I could understand a couple words in in Mandarin, but I, I was basically functionally illiterate in all the ways you could be. But what it meant was that um, I would basically just think in pictures and numbers. So words less important than pictures and numbers, like the way my brain worked overall was just pictures and numbers. Up through maybe age seven or eight, where you know I, I got far enough in Eng English as a second language class, which was poorly named because I basically had no language. It wasn't even my second language. It was just a language instead of none. And I reflect on that, and I think there's something about that, which is nowadays I go and teach corporate executives. I, I work with lots of startups and teach them how to learn faster, how to solve problems faster. And the stuff that I teach has been really useful to lots of people from lots of backgrounds and in terms of speeding up how they learn, speeding up how they do things in the world. And I like wondered for a bit, like, why would it be broadly applicable? Like that, you know, there's a lot of things where you learn something specialized, let's say in mm -hmm. electrical engineering or in, you know, science or in art. And if you try to bring it to a different place, well, it doesn't mean it, it's not like it doesn't translate at all, but it definitely, there's definitely like a lot of loss in translation parts if you try to teach it to folks that are not from that background. But this skill that I teach of helping people learn faster and solve problems faster seems to be pretty universal. And I kind of recognized after some time that I feel like what I'm teaching people is the way that they learn between the ages of zero and five, right? You know, everybody learns super, super fast during that time period and they take big yeah. risks. They go from, you know, sitting there to crawling to walking, which if you, if you think about that is like a pretty big change in behavior, a pretty big set of risks to take mm -hmm. on. And yet, you know, we, we look at that and because everybody's doing that, we don't recognize how much, um, and genius and, and like how quick the learning is happening there. Yeah. I guess like if you're, you're right in front of it, like you'll notice it because, or if you're a person who knows a kid and then you, you see them six months later and you see how much they've changed, you notice it. But really I feel like the, the main thing I teach people is, you know, reteach them to learn in that way. Cause I actually don't think that, we lose it, not nearly to the, the degree that everybody believes. I think what happens is we eventually um, get into language, and language basically teaches us a lot of concepts, and then we start to believe those concepts more than we believe, you know, in our own abilities to try and, you know, kind of experience through a thing as opposed to conceptualize and try to control through conceptual knowledge and predict through conceptual knowledge um, what will happen. Got it. So we don't really lose it. So I guess why is it that as we get older, 
uh, it seems. I mean, it seems like we lose it, and, and and so maybe we're becoming limited by some concepts. And so, what would be, let's say, for someone listening in who doesn't feel like they are, you know, they might say, okay, Tom, I mean, it's just you. You you just you know you had an innate brilliance. You know, you had a gene. It was it was something you just had. And so, for someone who doesn't feel like, like I know lots of folks that don't feel like they're you know, smart or good learners or, you know, they don't have any special ability or, or not particularly creative, uh, is there or are there and what are some of the things that that person can do to begin, you know, accessing some of that uh, creativity, that, that, that openness, that ability to learn, you know, as kids, we're curious, we're available, we're open. So, I'm, I'm, I'm curious what, what someone who feels that, that they're not uh, creative or great at learning, what, what they can do, what are some of the steps that, that they can take? I think a lot of it is really, you know, kind of foundational. Like, where is specialness located? Uh, I guess there's a idea that, like, well, there's the specialness that's inside of you, and, you know, some people have it and some people don't and that sort of thing. But my sensibility is more that, like, the human organism, and really a lot of animals have this, like, our ability to be in an environment, sense it in a ton of ways, and, and learn and respond to it is a very special thing, period. That's the thing that everybody has. And so that is both special and also not particularly special to you. But then, like, specialness comes from what do you do with all that? Like some people decide to use that and sit down at a piano every single day for, you know, 15 years straight. And when they use that kind of learning, listening, interacting for 15 years straight at a piano, then there's something special that comes out of that interaction. But it's not because like in the person themselves, like before they were born, it said, you will learn how to play the piano. It's like, no, I mean, what if you were born 2,000 years ago and there were no pianos? Like, it'd be a weird instruction mm. to get, right? <laughs> and so, so the other thing I would say is that I said pretty quickly, like, people learn language and they, they have all these concepts. And, and what I'll say is that a lot of the concepts that people work with are ultimately different safety constructs. Because, like, I work with entrepreneurs all the time, and they'll, they'll tell me it's like, mm what's the best way to go and, you know, develop your business model? Should I use business model canvas? Should I, should I like follow these instructions and lean startup? Should I, and you know, they have like whatever the, the process of the moment, you know, kind of fashion or they'll have like, Oh, well I'm reading, you know, this classic business school text. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's all fine. There's nothing wrong with those ideas. It's just a question of, are you using those ideas in order to create a false sense of safety where safety is not inherent to the thing, right? Because truthfully, doing stuff in the world is not about guaranteed safety. Like when a baby is learning how to walk, it's not guaranteed safety. Like there will be a bunch of tumbling. There will be falling sideways. There will be a point where you feel like you got the hang of it and all of a sudden you're back on the floor. But it's yeah. really about like during the baby days, 
those things like whatever, maybe you cry for a moment, but it's not really a big deal, right? You're not crying about falling, you know, uh, you're not crying about a fall that you had three weeks ago as a baby. You might be crawling and crying about a fall that you had, you know, a minute ago, but like, Mm -hmm. and think about that kind of relationship to safety. It's not that like the baby like learns some set of concepts that guarantees that they will be a hundred percent safe in the process of walking. And no baby would, would believe that or tell you they believe anything like that. But when I interact with entrepreneurs, I think they're actually kind of engaging in a belief system that's like that. That's like, oh, if I use business model canvas or if I follow these, you know, five you know, uh, key strategies for so-and-so, I will make the perfect business model that has no possibility of failure. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, that foundational belief is not true. And actually your work seems to be primarily about the guaranteeing of safety as opposed to what doing business is ultimately about, which is like the expression of possibility. Right? You got to get out there, express a bunch of possibilities. Some of those possibilities are going to serve people really well and, you know, and potentially uh, be profitable. And some of the things are not going to serve the world well. And when they don't serve the world well, it's kind of like falling down. And when you fall down, you can be crying about something that didn't work well three weeks ago. Or, you know, you can experience it, kind of feel bummed about it for a day or two, and then get back up and start trying to walk again. So really, when I teach people, I, it's really much more about that internal sensibility of like, no, let's just get back up and try to walk again. I'm not going to guarantee yeah. that your, your next experiment or your next trial is going to be the one. I'm not going to tell you some BS about like if we model this one perfectly or if you, if you follow exactly these three instructions, like you will create exactly the thing that cannot fail. Because I actually think that's an inaccurate portrayal of reality, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Especially yeah. when you're trying to do something new, you're basically doing things that we don't know exactly the configuration will, where it'll work. Mm. That doesn't mean that there isn't mm. one, but you definitely can't model things that have never been invented yet. Like, at least not with great certainty. Like, you can go make models that, where you pretend to create a sense of safety around it, but that's not the same thing as um, certainty. Yeah. So how can, I'm curious now, how can, uh, how can, how can we develop this sense of, because, okay, there is no guarantee. I think we, we have to learn to embrace that. And, but I see so many people we 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 allow our fear of the unknown, the fear of failure, you know, the fear of uncertainty to to hijack us, to stop us from whether it's starting a business. And I love what you said about business is about the expression of possibility. I mean, that's a very uh, it's an expansive view of the business. And so, you know, it makes me think life is also living life is is it takes courage. It, life is the expression of possibility. And so how can someone uh, develop? Is, is, is there something that they can do to develop this sort of inner sense of safety? This, this, this is the understanding. Now, the, the, the inner sense of safety, the internal courage, the internal resilience so that we don't allow fear to just hijack us in anything we do or what we do have. 
are there any thoughts on that? Because I know you've you know you've launched many pro- projects and products and, and as an entrepreneur and running businesses and teams. So how do you get your teams? How do you get people to to internally develop courage? Yeah, I think all the words that you're saying, it's like a bouquet of words that we are using because folks are struggling with this idea, like mm-hmm. fear and courage and resilience. And I don't have any problem with any way of describing things that get people into action. My kind of view on it is that um, if there is a belief system that makes it so that you get into action in a consistent and ongoing way, then stick with that one, uh, whichever words that, that are used to go do it. If there is a, and it can vary by person, there might be one belief system where that does that perfectly for one person, and that same belief system with a different person does nothing. They just sit there analyzing. It's like, well, why aren't I more courageous though? And say, like, okay, <laughs> maybe, maybe that's not working for you, Dad. Um, because at the end of the day, remember the idea of like language versus just the reality of things. Like whatever language that you use, it's not, Steve Chandler has a good phrase, which is it's not what a goal is, it's what a goal does. Right. So if you need to go say really lofty things, but that gets you out of the morning, get out of the bed every morning, like excited and engaged, then that's how your goal should be. If, you know, if saying really lofty things actually intimidates you and makes you scared of doing anything because you've set the bar so high, then set really basic things with like, here's the three things on my task list for today. And if that gets you going, then do it that way. And same sort of thing around language and systems and all that sort of thing. There is a way of looking at the world through the lens of courage or through the lens of overcoming fear or through the lens of what have you, where when you look back at the last two weeks, it has gotten you into action over and over, then you should stick with that one. But be very wary of ones where you're like, yeah, I went in there and I studied that and now I'm struggling with like, why I still have these fears and, you know, but this system says that these fears will go away if I do this, but I'm really afraid of doing that. I'm like, Oh my gosh. (laughs) Then whatever this goal was, it's not doing, you know, what the goal does is not cutting it. And I know this might sound like a cop out answer, but I think it's realistic, like different. The reason that there's so many teachers with different systems is that different teachings hit people's, um, psyche in different ways because there's such a broad, beautiful variety of psyches in the world. And like, if a thing hits you, and and I want to draw the distinction. There's things that are crazy inspiring in the moment, but then you pop back like two days later, and it's just kind of like, oh, well, that fizzled out. So pay attention to like how a system of beliefs or a system of looking into your work affects you particularly. If it gives you a little spike, but then it drops off and you get nothing, then maybe that's not for you. Or maybe you would use that just for like a five minute pick me up, but not the way that you lead your life. If there's another one, which doesn't give you a spike, but it does make it so that you sit down four hours a day at least and really kind of stick with what you're doing. It's like, Oh, that's one of the good ones. 
And then if there's other ones that, because there's ones that like make you feel bad on purpose so that you try to, I'm like, oh, well, if that works for you, then great. But stay like really true to what is this system doing for me? And don't get, you know, like religiously tied to any of them if they're not, you know, actually creating the life that you want. It's finding, finding what, what works for you individually, honoring your own uniqueness. Because I think everyone has a different nervous system, different, you know, predispositions, different way of working. That's cool. Yes, really intellectually appeal. It's like, oh, I really mm-hmm. like this because it makes me feel good. Or I really like this because I like to think of myself in this way. But like if you were mm-hmm. to just look back on the last two weeks of behavior, because I'm very boring person in some ways I just you know mm. I just say well what actually happened is what happened so if you look back on the last two weeks and even if you felt inspired if it like actually led to no behavior like it led to no mm. action toward your goal then you just got to look at it again and be like you know this system makes me feel good but it actually I actually haven't done anything in the last two weeks you know adopting those mm. beliefs so and this is not to be like, oh, and therefore I'm a bad person and I got duped by this teacher or whatever. No, that teacher, mm-hmm. teacher's teaching might have been perfect for some other person. But like for Someone you else. in this moment, it just doesn't do that. You know, the last two weeks have shown mm-hmm. you it just doesn't do that. So just get curious. Like what other things could I do? And I'll throw out the relatively mm-hmm. radical idea of it might actually work to just drop all systems and do a little mm-hmm. bit but that's that's oftentimes too radical for people to wrap their heads around. So talk well, a bit more about the dropping, because I think we hold on to so many systems. I think you're right. This formula, that formula, this, and and and, and I know a lot of folks that just are so overwhelmed by all the systems and modalities. So talk to me a bit more about just dropping all systems. I mean, it's almost I I think I heard Bruce Lee talk about something like you know no no technique and so no formula and and. What, what do you mean? What, is that, what does that look like? Because I think it might be scary for some people. Sounds radical for some people. I think we've all seen it. So if you imagine, like, uh, there's a piano in the house, and you have some three-year-olds, and then they pop over mm-hmm. there, and you know what? There are thousands of systems around composing music. And I'm a person who composes music and spent you know, a lot of time, like, being in different kinds of bands and stuff. And it's like, I know dozens of those systems but it is beautiful still to go see somebody with no system be like look at me making sound and Mm -hmm. actually interesting things start to come out and this is also kind of the idea of beginner's mind it's like no even if you know dozens of ways to potentially get into this for a moment you know just drop it or like like turn down the noise level on all the things that the systems would tell you to do same sort of thing with some kids and some crayons Right? There's many systems and styles of artistic and visual expression. And kids don't know them yet. I mean, they see things around them in the world. So, like, look at how quick they are to just get into some sort of action. And at the end of the day, like, you know, they scribble a whole page yellow with a couple blue marks on it. And an adult looking at that actually feels something. It's not that, like, because they didn't have a system that nothing that can impact people can ever happen. And what happened there? It's like, a, you know, a kid spent 12 minutes scribbling with three crayons and you felt something. 
but I think like when it really comes down to the stuff that's like, let's start at some of the basics, especially if nothing has happened in a new idea yet. Let's just scribble some stuff down. And sometimes I have a technique that I teach people where I give them so little time that they, they couldn't possibly believe that it's going to be good. So like they'll take some business idea that they've been, you know, kind of nursing and talking about and deliberating on for three years. I said, okay, well, you've got 15 minutes. And at the end of 15 minutes, I'm going to experience your product or service. Like, what do you mean? It's like, well, if your product or service does something in the world, you know, then it needs to be experienceable, right? Like if it, if there's no experience from it, then kind of nothing happened in the world. And they kind of nod, which because that makes enough sense. They say, well, don't worry about doing the whole thing. Don't worry about like which lawyers you need to work with in order to, you know, uh, create an entity in this way or that way, or which accounting system you're going to use, or, you know, whether it's going to be branded this way or that way. Like just drop all that for a moment. Let's just get to like the essential, like 30 seconds of my life that will be a little bit different because you put something in the world. That's it. It's only going to be 30 seconds long and I'm giving you 15 minutes to go and create like a little simulation. It can be like a little moment of theater, if you will, that represents that 30 seconds. But it both narrows things down a lot and it's only 15 minutes. I tell them, it's like, you know what? It's only 15 minutes. So like, you know, I wouldn't expect to be able to solve all my business problems in 15 minutes. Like, like, so don't overthink it around like, oh, this needs to be the perfect one. It's only 15 minutes. It basically has to be bad. And in practice, like as soon as they allow themselves to be like, okay, well, this is going to have to be bad. It's so short, like it couldn't possibly be good. Then they actually pick up the crayons and they scribble a little bit. And all of a sudden we put that in front of a couple, you know, customers or, or people that might be interested in that product or service. And they're responding. Oh, it's a whole sheet of yellow. Oh, well that makes me feel this way. And they start to recognize that, yeah, even a couple of strokes of a crayon can do something. And if I start to get in the water around that, then it's possible for me to start swimming. But if I never get in the water, if I'm just looking and analyzing, the waves, then everything feels very intimidating. I never learned how to coordinate my arms and legs. I never learned how to float. So that's kind of the difference. And if I say, hey, I don't need you to be an Olympic swimmer. We're just going to splash around in the shallow end. Your head will never even be underwater. It can't even be swimming yet because your head is not even touching the water. Then things like relax a lot. And then they say, yeah, I guess I can splash around a little bit. And I'm around you who's helped a lot of entrepreneurs in the past. So like, you know, nobody's going to drown in 15 minutes. That's fine. And we splash around and all of a sudden they're like, oh, I have the feel of the water now. This is, feels all right. In other places you might be like, oh, I don't like it when it gets splashed in my, in my nose. That's good to know. And it just becomes a lived experience that you can have an embodied response to as opposed to an intellectual experience. Like the, yeah. in Buddhism, there's the sensibility of first darts and second darts. So there will be, and physical experiences are always limit themselves to first darts. Like if you go and stub your toe, then 
you know, there might be some pain associated with it, but it's not infinite pain. Right? You stub your toe, you know, it, it hurts for a moment, might be swollen for a couple of days, and that's the end of it. It has a beginning, middle, and end, no problem. A lot of times when we stub our toe mentally, intellectually, around concepts, or especially around concepts of whether we're good enough to be able to do a thing or whether we're competent at a thing, that's like stubbing your toe, but the pain never goes down. And like when, because people will be like, oh, I'm still, I'm still kicking myself because I thought of that business idea eight years ago. And here I see these people on the news and they made a huge business about it. Damn it. And that's them still feeling the pain from like the mentally stubbed toe years and years later. And as soon as you jump in the water, you turn things from these infinite mental loops into physical ones. Like it may be uncomfortable to do 15 minutes and have a person not particularly like your idea. That happens all the time, but because it's an actual direct embodied experience, it has a limited, you know, shelf life. You can't keep kicking yourself over and over about it. You just like, Oh, I saw that this 15 minutes of effort didn't create what I had hoped to create in the world. Well, let me try another 15 minutes of effort. And that's, that's actually what it feels like to be in the water. Well, actually, when I wrote my book, Tom, uh, you know, I, I hate the process of writing. I mean, I love speaking, but writing, I just, you know, I've always had this thing in my mind, like I'm not a great writer and it's the grueling process for me to write. And, I, and so I, I just gave myself permission to, to like totally be bad, you know, to write terrible, to write crap. And I just said, I'm just going to, I'm just going to like give myself full permission to be terrible on paper. And funnily enough, when I took, took off that limitation, stuff came out, you know, now obviously it wasn't perfect, but there was a lot of, a lot of seeds in what I wrote that led to my book. So uh, I, I think it's right on. So I'm curious, uh, as you're talking, kind of two, two parts of the question here is, you know, as you've worked on projects and teams and with entrepreneurs, uh, you've had your own evolution. I'm curious what, what success is to you based on where you are today? Uh, what does success mean? Because I think it can be a very loaded word. I mean, we met, at a, uh, met you at a conference, Success 3.0. So what does success mean? And do you have, so the second part of the question is, do, do you have, do, do, you, do you set goals? Do you, do you make specific plans? I mean, because there's some folks that really like they're into planning every single step of the way. And, and so I'm curious how, success and planning and goal setting come together for you now? Yeah. So around success, I mean, I want to build off of something that you just said, which is you were, you're there and you decided it's okay to write badly, you know, as you're getting the thoughts out on about your book, you know, and it didn't Mm -hmm. need to be perfect. And I'll just say like, even in that statement is basically the fundamental construct uh, of error or, and every, everybody's struggling with this. It's like, huh, mm-hmm. well, I've seen better stuff and it's not perfect yet. Blah, blah, blah. Yep. And I like throw out, you know, for folks a different kind of idea around what success is and what mastery is. And sometimes I share it like this, like if you were a person, so imagine you're a person that has like decided to become a master at playing the guitar. And starting at age seven, you begin practicing 
you know, six, seven hours a day. And you do it every single day for years and years. And next thing you know, you're playing shows. And next thing you know, you know, you're writing your own songs. And, and fast forward, and you keep up this practice. You started at age seven, let's say. Now you're age 84. And it's like literally the last days of your life. And somebody comes to you, and even then you try, you know, you go and pick up the guitar and do a couple hours, you know, even as you're, you're ailing in bed. If somebody came to a person like that after an entire life of dedicating themselves to the guitar and asked the question, wow, you know, you've played so many styles and you've like written so many albums and you've had such an influence in the guitar world, like you've learned so much, like more than than anyone that we've seen in, in these, you know, in the past few decades, is there anything more to learn about the guitar? And a true master, and you know, would say, there's an infinite amount more. Right? Like perfection gives you the sensibility that there's an endpoint. Mastery is the is the deep understanding that there is no endpoint. That what it means yeah. to be a master is to go continue a process of devotion, right? Like that person devoted a large part of their life. And really anybody who decides to get on the path of mastery, because I think even the word, you know, people feel like mastery is an end thing. Well, you're a master now. Oh, you have, you know, whatever you are. It's like, no, no, you, if you're saying I've achieved mastery now, or I am a master now, you are misunderstanding what mastery is. Right? Mastery is not an endpoint. You know, perfection to the, you know, we pretend that perfection is an endpoint. No, no, no. The people that are the best in the world are the thing. Like you think about in any discipline, whether it's playing the guitar or designing, you know, um, clothes or, or um, expressing yourself artistically or expressing yourself through business, you look at any of those people, the reason that we continue to look at them is they are they have deep devotion to that discipline. They are going to continue coming back. And some of the things will be hits. And some of them will be, look, I worked on Outlook that was used by a quarter billion people. Okay, well, you know, as, as much as things can be, that's a hit. Yeah, I worked on yes. Google Glass, and that got used by probably 20,000 people. It's like, okay, well, but I'm still devoted to the craft. You know, the, the self-driving cards, like, well, that was used by a small number of people, but every year it's used by more people. Okay. And that said, none of those things are the end point that I say is, well, there, I finished the perfect thing. Like, I feel like the, peop- the reason that people ask me about entrepreneurship or the reason that, you know, whatever ex- executive teams and big companies hire me to teach them about this is that. I just have a devotion to this type of craft. And does it mean that every single thing I touch is going to be a hit, that every single release is going to touch a half a billion lives? No. I did a couple things that affected hundreds of millions of people. And that's maybe three things out of 30 things that I've done. And so that said, I'm still devoted to the craft. And a person who's devoted to the craft, you know, you do it for enough years, can I guarantee that there'll be another thing that I do that touches a hundred million people or a billion people? No, just like mm. a person that like is, is devoted to the craft of playing guitar can't guarantee that they're going to play a sold out stadium show for 
80,000 people, you know, within the next five years. But they can, and this goes right to the point around success and goals, they can say that for sure, for the next five years, I will be deeply devoted to this craft. And Mm. I'll tell you for sure that if you're deeply devoted to the craft, you're going, more will happen for you in it than if you decide, if you weren't devoted to it. If you said, well, I'm going to play it, and if I don't get any success in the first two months, then, you know, it's probably not for me. Mm. Yeah, think about how a person sounds after playing the guitar for two months. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. I I love the word that you're using, devotion, you know, because I think that that's a key. I mean, it's, I think in devotion... Uh, is it, it, a level of surrender, you know, is a level of heartful surrender. And the uh, thing I'm hearing is, is if you're just attached to the outcome or the result, uh, like mastering a, an instrument in two months, likely you will give up. And so I, I think that's right on. I mean, when I was a kid, Tom, I, I actually uh, took on, uh, talk about instrument, took on st- uh, st- the study of saxophone. And I was not devoted to the craft. I wanted to get the girls. And after two, three months, I gave up because it was way too difficult at age 13, you know. So um, I think that's a really key distinction, devotion. Mm. And it's valuable to go ask yourself, like, what, what craft you will find yourself devoted to. And I feel like people mm-hmm. kind of, you know, a lot of times they want to, like, pre-choose it based on yeah. goals that they have. In your case with the saxophone, well, I want to go get these girls. In other cases, people are like, well, I want to get into business because I got to make this money and da da da. It's like, well, you recognize that the making of the money is not the craft. You also recognize that the getting of the girls is not the craft of playing the saxophone. And to the extent that the thing that you want to realize in your life is actually not the craft itself, then there's just going to be some tension there. I'm not going to say that no one has ever achieved it, you know, starting with a goal like that, but it's um, you're kind of swimming upstream a little bit if that's the case. Now, if the reason that you decide to spend uh, time with music is because when you spend time with it, it transports you. That, like, as you get into that craft, like, you know, on days that it sounds beautiful, it's, it's something transcendent. And on days that it doesn't sound beautiful it still challenges you and grows you in a way that, that you feel is um, deep and meaningful to you, then that's the person that's going to stay with that craft. Like over my life, I've written about 800 songs. And am I a famous musician? No. Have I played in a bunch of bands and really enjoyed moments of deep connection through playing with other musicians and writing songs for causes that I, I care about or even my own projects? Absolutely. So I feel like I've had a life in music, even though I haven't had enormous monetary, you know, response in music. And that's great. Like, I will stay dedicated to their craft. And a beautiful thing that's possible for me because of that devotion to the craft is I wrote enough songs every year that I can actually go and almost have a journey through time by picking a particular year and listening to the 14 songs I wrote that year, um, you know, whatever, going back to age like 13 or 12. I didn't write that many at age 12. I think I wrote two songs at age 12, so I, we won't count that yet. But like, you know, it's, 
I can basically kind of dial back to any moment in my life and re-experience it through the lens of what my music was in that year. And I think there will be devotions that you have like that where it's ultimately for you. And maybe my music, I guess some of it, like I've used, uh, some of my music is, has been used to score films and video games and, and, you know, my own projects. So though some of those got commercially used, but in the grand scheme of things, it's like, have I ever made a huge amount of money in music? No, not relative to the, any other, uh, any of the other things. So, but I have a devotion to it where you look at that and you say, that is a devotion that I want to have as part of my life, uh, whether it is monetarily lucrative or not. And there'll be other devotions that you have that are the ones. So I am devoted to teaching people this practice of being able to innovate, learn quickly, you know, really touch into how powerful uh, and expressive their, their minds and their kind of embodied ways of creating can be. And that is a, another type of craft that I have a deep devotion to. Uh, but in the practice of doing that, that one is monetarily lucrative. So I feel like, and you can, you can just accept the things for what they are. Because I feel like what happens is people like happen onto something like music. For me, it's something like music. Other people, music is really lucrative for them. And that's, that's great. But they happen onto it and it is part of their devotions, but it's not lucrative. And they're like, I need to make this into something that it's not. Right. And that's a very painful place to be around your devotion. Yeah. And there, yeah. you know, there'll be other devotions where honestly, I never planned to create a career around teaching this, this craft of people, you know, learning faster and using their minds and, you know, more effectively and being innovative. I just, it was a thing that I was personally devoted to and I tried to practice my own work. And as I started to run teams, I like taught them. The next thing you know, I was being asked by other teams to go within my, within, you know, as a corporate executive within my corporation to go teach their teams because they had seen what happened to my teams from teaching them. The next thing you know, I'm being asked, you know, to go speak about it externally. And next thing you know, people are paying me to go and speak about it externally. And I was like, whoa, mm -hmm. how'd that happen? Now, at the end of the day, like, it wouldn't have happened if I didn't also have that devotion. Like, I was devoted to that well before it was monetarily lucrative. It's a thing that happens to be monetarily lucrative. Um, and actually, if I were to try to fight it and not make it that, I would also have tension because yeah. there was points in my life where I was like, Oh, these people want to teach me. I'm going to fly to whatever Singapore to go teach them. No offense to Singapore. I think it's a great city class nation, mm -hmm. um, but it's on the other side of the world. So, uh, and like, yeah. there'll be days where I'm grumpy about it, but like in practice, it's like, no, no, no. Like actually to go fight that fight, you know, mm -hmm. what is true about that devotion is would be problematic as well. But I think it's really about like you do the stuff and you will discover in your life, like, and you also can't pre pre guess what your devotions are. Like when I was seven and, you know, if somebody were to present this possible devotion to me, I don't know that I would get it. Like, I don't mm -hmm. know that I would get even what it was to go teach the yeah. things that I teach. So this idea where it's like, Oh, you'll just know your passion. You'll just know your bliss. It's not true. I think 
So this is the concept I definitely want to share. So now I like, I turned 40 not too long ago. And when you turn 40, then, you know, it's not that you have no energy all of a sudden, but you have a little less energy than you did in your 20s or 30s. And I started to recognize that I was experiencing a thing that I call useful tiredness. Because there's like events or things that I was being asked to do where it's like, no, I'm a little too tired to do that. But it's useful because those things were less aligned with, you know, the sort of things I want to create in the world. And it made me reflect back on my 20s and 30s where I basically had all this extra energy to do whatever, right? And part of, you know, one hat you could put on and be like, well, that was like, you know, you being like uh, scattered and, you know, you have all this youthful scattered energy. But actually, in reflecting on it, I was like, no, there's a purpose to all of it. Like in your teens and 20s and 30s, you actually have too much energy. But the reason to go have that energy is you can actually just directly try you know, dozens or even a hundred different things and ways of being and types of people you can be around. Just like actually try it all. And when you try it all, you will, you will probably, you know, if you try enough things, you will probably discover your devotion. Now, if you didn't have that, like if somebody said, no, the straight and narrow path at age 15 is you're going to get this type of job and do exactly these things and you're going to like it. You're going to study, you know, uh, you're going to go to pharmacy school, damn it. You got to go do it. Then if that's literally the only thing that you've tried between the ages of 15 and 35, you might not, well, unless that ends up being your devotion, which is still possible, of course, but like, um, but like if it's literally the only thing that you've tried, then you might not end up discovering your devotion. If you allow kind of a little bit of leeway in those decades to like, just give everything a shot, give everything a couple months shot. There'll be a bunch of things where you're like, no, I'm not going to stay devoted to this. And that's all right. And there'll be like, whatever, two or three out of 50 where you experience that. And it's like, I want this to be part of my life. Like I want this to shape who it is that I am. And then by the time you get into your forties, then you can start making decisions around like, well, I'm not going to do a dozen new things every year. That's too many things. Like I know what my two devotions are. I know what my three devotions are. And I want to really practice mastery over the next couple of decades on my, on my couple devotions. I love it. it. You've answered quite a few, quite a few questions I have Tom in terms of purpose and kind of, finding so-called finding one's purpose and it's really great stuff i'm curious um with where you are now uh what you see as some of the biggest uh problems or challenges that uh, we're facing as as a humanity as a whole as you look at humanity and you see technology and politics and economics and education and how it's all moving together. What do you see as, as, as the biggest problems, challenges we're facing as is humanity and perhaps what we can do about them and what you're most excited about? Yeah. I mean, this is a pretty deep topic, but like one of the things mm-hmm. that I'm spending, you know, a lot of my time, really the majority of my time on right now is looking at, what are all the ways in practicing, you know, what are all the ways that we need to reinvent how society and industry work so that humanity can become a net positive to nature? 
so that the existence of people on the planet actually makes nature healthier every year instead of sicker every year. And I mean, in your question, like there's buried a bunch of things where it's like, Oh, what, you know, what were you like, are you passionate about and all that sort of thing. But I'll tell you that this one came about in a way, which is not like, you know, the vision board, you know, kind of sensibility of like, Oh, well, you got to go project your passion. It came about because, um, you know, since 2006, I've lived in Hawaii part of the year. I'm actually there right now, which is why you hear, like, birds mm-hmm. and stuff. Um, yeah, I can hear the birds, can Yeah, there's a bunch of them. That's just what they do all morning. But, um, you know, I lived in Hawaii. I recently moved to a different spot in Hawaii for part of the year. But um, the place that we originally lived was right next to one of the most beautiful coral reefs in the world, really, but certainly the most beautiful coral reef that I've ever been able to directly experience. And I, you know, during the time in Hawaii, I would very often in the morning take the five-minute walk over to the reefs and swim them in the morning before breakfast and start out the day with having experienced that type of beauty. But in the year 2011, uh, something basically pretty tragic happened. It's over the course of just a couple months, I witnessed my coral reefs go from, you know, every color of the rainbow and hundreds of fish in all directions uh, to gray and brown and dead. And like, you might be able to see two fish. And I was like, what happened? How did this die? And I thought, well, maybe our neighborhood did something wrong, but we're not near industry. Nothing had really changed you know, from 2006 to 2011 in terms of, like, what the neighborhood was doing. So why did it suddenly die in just a couple months? And I found out that, you know, it had bleached because of heat stress, and actually 10% of all coral reefs in the entire world died that year. And I'm going to say that, like, sometimes you're called to things because of uh, passion or bliss, and sometimes you're called to things because of tragedy. And when you swim that and you see it happen over the course of these couple months, you're like, I'm witnessing a slow motion tragedy and I can't get that out of my heart. So it's like, I'm either going to live a life where I just deny that I saw that and pretend that everything's just fine and dandy. And I have these other things on my vision board that I wanted to do that weren't this thing. Because, you know, I was a busy person in 2011. I was working on lots of tech projects. I was inventing this and that, right, whatever. But, like, you experience something like that, you can't get it out of your heart. And you really need to ask yourself the question, you know, in the face of some things that are tragedy, you know, who are you going to be? Like, what are you going to do, if anything? And maybe it happens literally that moment. You resolve from that moment that you're going to change everything about your life. And other times it unfolds. For me, it was a thing that unfolded where I knew that whatever was happening here was highly problematic. That 10% of all the coral reefs, this critical ecosystem, which is like really like the keystone for a lot of ocean life, you know, disappeared in a single year. But, you know, what was I going to do in 2011? And over the course of a couple of years, it unfolded and unfolded. And I was, and I started to recognize more and more, both by starting to do work in the area of 
climate and environment, and specifically the way that business affects climate and the environment. Because look, I got a background in business. I have a background in entrepreneurship. So I started to ask myself, well, where'd this come from? Oh, actually industry did all this. And I'm the sort of person that knows how to change industry, right? Because I know how to invent new things. I know how to work with executive teams to go change their mindset. Well, that's actually fantastic because if the thing that is breaking the environment is industry, and I'm a person that has the ability to change the way that industry thinks, then let me start getting into it. And little by little, that's what my practice has become. Like when I work with executive teams, I absolutely do teach them to innovate faster. But the way I teach them to innovate faster is actually through deep listening and compassion. And deep listening and compassion are these core ingredients that allow us not only to listen to customers or our teams better, but it allows you to open the aperture to start listening to the greater ecosystem. And yes, I've mentored lots of startups, but I started to really focus that mentorship on startups where, oh, you guys are going to go disrupt. And I actually use a slightly different word because people like, oh, startups disrupt industries. No, no, I want to go back to startups that will reharmonize that industry back into, you know, uh, the kind of harmonious, uh, interbeing with the environment, mm. right? So it'll absolutely shake everything up, but it'll shake things up toward harmony, not shake things up just toward disruption. Now, we'll, sometimes when you shake things up, yes, you will feel that disruption over those couple years, but what is the ultimate goal? Is it just to go squeeze out a couple more dollars? No. If the ultimate goal is, well, we're shaking this up because it can allow us to be more harmonious with nature in the long run, then I'm there for that startup. So let's go do it. And then whatever, like this is a lot of different things to go say I can get into, you know, um, if people want to learn a bunch about this work, if you go to tomkey.com, this first video covers a lot about this work. Um, but getting off of the kind of, kind of promotional stuff for a second is like a deeper idea, which is sometimes your life mission will present itself as a type of bliss. Like for me, yes. listening to music, writing music is a type of bliss. And other times it'll present itself as a type of heartache. Like a thing that you can't get out of your heart that you know that like your life needs, you know, part of your life needs to be for because, you know, it, it won't ever leave you. And I think a lot of times, especially in this type of community, we see those things. It's like, oh, I still have pain about this. I still have triggers around it. I need to heal it away. It's like, no, actually, maybe healing that is the process of deeply engaging it, of like making it a world, you know, engaging with the world and making a world where less of that happens. Maybe that's what it means to heal it. Maybe the healing process is not a fully internal one. Mm, I like that. Maybe the healing process isn't a fully internal one, but actually through engaging the world, we, we actually heal not only the world, but ourselves in that process. Yeah, and actually, maybe part of your mission is not that, oh, I'll heal myself back to 100%, and then I'll be a whole person again, and Mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. Actually, maybe part of the reason that you're here is you experience the pain like that. And in that part of your life, it brought you from 100% or just not knowing where you stood down to 30%. And in the process of reengaging in the world and trying to go and contribute what you can to it, you move from 30%, you know, like settled with it 
to 55% settled with it, and you never completely heal. You never look at that. On your dying day, you don't look at that and say, we finished it all, right? Yes. But maybe you're here to go move from that, you know, 30% to 55%. That's what you're here for. Like, this is that idea of mastery again. Like, what if there wasn't an endpoint? Yeah, actually, I feel like I am both committed to, like, doing this work where humanity becomes a net positive to nature and also very much um, okay with the idea that by the time I die, we might have gotten 2% of the way there. Because right now we're mm. pretty negative to nature, right? And it might yeah. actually take us 200 years or 1,000 years to be the sort of civilization that every, you know, because we're here every single year, nature is healthier and, you know, and enriched. It might be a thousand year push. And if my entire life, you know, goes and contributes 2%, 3% to that goal, then that's maybe what I'm here for. Mm, beautiful. Folks, we're, we're, we're listening to this uh, interview with, the amazing Tom Chi. I'm taking lots of notes. Uh, and just as you're listening in, folks, I would love for you to think about, you know, what are you truly devoted to? Uh, throughout this, the last few moments of this interview, Tom, that's, some, that's a word that has stuck out for me. Because as I reflect on my life, you know, my work has never been my, it, it's been a devotion. And through ups and downs, uh, it's the devotional aspect in terms of the deeper motivation that has kept me going. And so, folks, what are you devoted to? What are you willing to devote to? What are you willing to be devoted to? So I feel like I could speak to you forever. I mean, there's, there's so many questions I have, uh, so many we've answered, uh, so many more. We'd love to have you back on, on just for the sake of the, t- the time. Um, you shared a lot today. I would love to ask you just to sit with a final question or two. And one of those is, is a simple one, but Take it where you want to take it. If there were three, let's say, based on your life, everything you've lived um, till now, if there were three key life lessons that just as a, as a human, as a man, as, as, as a, a soul walking this planet, that you've learned three life lessons, you've learned that if these were the only, let's say, three things you could pass on to the next generation, Tom Chi wisdom, uh, to, to your children, their grandchildren, and on and on, to, but that you feel would evolve the next generations the most in terms of thoughts, ideas, principles, life lessons, what would the three key life lessons be? Hmm. I mean, building off of what we were just talking about, one yep. lesson is that your your tragedies don't break you. Your tragedies mm-hmm. are the things that connect you the most deeply to some of the most fundamental experiences of being human. And they're an invitation for you to both fully experience humanness and also do something that helps to change what it is possible for humanness going forward. And that's really abstract, but, you know, there was a time, and we still have some people that are in this state, but there was a time where even, like, the patricians in, in Rome thought that slavery was just. And there was many 
centuries, millennia of people that lived lives enslaved, a type of like personal tragedy. But they were experiencing that also partially so all of humanity could wake up. And they're experiencing it also part of a process of developing, you know, a type of resiliency and perspective and a thing that we still draw from, right? Like why do so many of the arts come from people that had been enslaved? It's not an accident. Yeah. So I think we need to rephrase what tragedy is. Yes. Like we look at tragedy and like, oh, it's so bad for you. And it's like, "Mm, no, that's just too small a lens. Mm. Like this tragedy connects me to where humanity is right now. Like we have the AIDS tragedy and it connected us to the reality of how you know, queer people were are cast out by society. And once again, why do so many of the arts like deep expression come from communities like that? It's because it's like a tragedy that is longing and calling for us to create a new type of wholeness. It's like that's what your tragedy ultimately is for society. It's like a recall. It's like a a call to a return to wholeness. And it's tough. Like you won't, your life might not be the full resolution of that. It might be one of the lives that contributes to it over, you know, a millennia of slavery. It might be one of the lives that contributes to it over, you know, hundreds of years of homophobia. It might be one of the lives that contributes. So that's definitely one life lesson. Um, another life lesson going back to the beginning of the conversation is that we have all these concepts that we believe to be reality, but are really just a way of, you know, um, uh, convincing ourselves around safety and look, if it, if it does a little bit, and that little feeling of safety helps you continue to act and be brave, then go for it. But if you find yourself doing mental gymnastics and, you know, spiraling and all these curly cues around the right concept that will solve all your problems so that you can be totally safe as you go and try things in a world where not everything is guaranteed every moment, then that's an easy way to get lost. Mm. And sometimes just having less of that, sometimes just picking up the crayon and asking yourself, what is the simplest form of being in this, getting in the water? You know, if you picked up the saxophone and the very first thing was like, Hey, we're going to play, you know, we're going to play Coltrane. You're like, well, I don't know. It's like, well, maybe if I give you these mental constructs and rules for it, then you'll you'll be able to jump in and play amazing jazz. You're like, oh, I don't know. Those are things that keep you out of the water. Like, what you really want is like, let's make a sound. Yeah, we can make any kind of sound. We're in the water. 
and like if you and really maybe this goes to the third lesson which is once you earlier in your life and whatever even when if you're 70 you want to reinvent yourself this is great too but at any point in your life where you have the desire or the energy for your life to be different than it is get into that practice of making a sound over here over there try out 10 things you know if don't make your goal like the perfect list go and make your goal over the next you know 10 weeks to try out 10 things and in the practice of doing that you may happen upon some things that you are willing to be devoted to and if you do then put in you know 10 weeks into that and if at the end of those 10 weeks you're like yeah you know i this is a thing that needs to be part of my life on the great days it's transcendent on the bad days it calls me in for more then and don't be too you know harsh on yourself trying to make it into something it's not like like i know folks like want to be a coach it's like oh great you know i want to get into coaching and then tomorrow i need to like close some clients so i can make a six-figure salary off of it and it's like that doesn't sound like a process of devotion to me the process of devotion kind of sounds like i tried out coaching some people and i really dig this part of it i really get this oh you know now that i've worked with some people i'm i'm you know i ran into some some challenges but i like i love this i love you know feeling those challenges learning into them and i'm going to come back for more and then you do that for a little while it's like yeah well now i got five playing clients and that's as much as I can possibly do right now. Like that's, that's the level, like this is me playing the saxophone and I can, I can bang out a couple songs and those songs do help some people. I'm not going to tell you that I'm an expert at anything. I'm not going to write a website that claims all that. I'm just going to like be in that devotion and be like, yeah, right now I'm a person who can play five songs right now. I'm a person that can coach people on these two types of ideas. And when I find people that need those two types of ideas, I can really go do something deep for them. But, um, but yeah, if I get a next client and it's outside of that, then maybe I'm clueless. And those are some songs I got to learn still, but I'm going to stay devoted. But it's like, don't be too, um, if I were to summarize all that, it's like, don't try to like predict or force exactly what your devotions are going to be. Like in, points in life that you really want to go and change. There's a thing that I teach, which is uh, possibility is the opposite of identity, right? Like mm. if you, if you're in an identity and it's not the identity you want to have for the rest of your life, you need to like move over on the spectrum toward the other end of the spectrum, which is possibility and like float for a little bit and try 20 things. If you're in a world where actually your entire life is like flightily trying a bunch of things. Oh, I tried this. And next week I tried that. And, Oh, I have this art project I'm doing. And then people ask you about it three weeks later. It's like, Oh yeah, I dropped it. Cause I got bored with it after a couple of days. Mm-hmm. And that's you being totally impossibility, but sometimes you're there. And for those sorts of people, what they need to do is ground into identity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they might do something that's like, yeah, like I was all over the place, but then I became a mom. And I really had to ground in and, and it was one of the best things that could have ever happened to me because that identity became something that, that created a foundation and wherever you are on that spectrum, 
you know, if you're not happy with what's happening in life, I would look toward the other end of the spectrum. If you're flying around in a lot of possibilities and nothing actually gets done, you might ground yourself with a simple job. Maybe it's a minimum wage job. You might ground yourself with a particular role in your family or a relationship. It's okay. Like, you know, even though that might be um, scary to go and stick with something for a couple months or a couple years, then it is healing, actually, if you have an intrinsically, you know, possibility-focused life that never lands. And if you're a person that's stuck in identity, oh, I've been in this job for the last 14 years, you know, every single day is a carbon copy in the last day, yeah, like maybe two years from now, if I do everything right, I'll get a $2,000 promotion, then your thing, and you're not happy with that because some people do all that and they love Mm -hmm. that. That's great. But if you're in that space and you're not happy with it, then I would look toward the other end of the spectrum, which is possibility. And then you might ask yourself, it's like, what's a night class that I could take? What's like an online course that I could spend three hours on and just shake things up a little bit? You know, if I watch these TV shows, like what if I didn't watch those TV shows for a little bit and I like mm. chose a book or an audio book I would listen to instead? Like what if we just shake it up a little bit? So identity is the opposite of possibility. And most people feel stuck because they're trapped at one end of that spectrum. And whichever end of the spectrum that you are, you know, that you feel trapped in, you might want to shake it up by going in that other direction. Mm. Love it. So that's a, that would be a, a really great assignment for everyone listening in to kind of explore your relationship with possibility and identity, identity and possibility, and uh, and explore, expand, play with it, massage it, shake it up. That that's a folks, that's a great assignment. I would love for you to, to take to take that piece of of what Tom said on and, and explore that. See see where it takes you, see what opens up. And uh, would love to hear about what happens. Tom, this has been a really beautiful conversation. You know, really appreciate your time and just sensitivity and your insights that you you just generously shared. Would love to have you back on on Soul Talk. You know, for those listening in uh, that want, maybe want to find out more about your work and your teaching and what you're up to and connect more with you with with what you're up to these days what's what's the best way you mentioned your website what's the best way people can find out about you and connecting to what you're up to yeah i mean you can go to my website and um you know there's some talks that i i have given so first talk is about that work of humanity becoming that positive to nature there's also a link to an online course that i use to go teach people a bunch of skills um and then if you need to reach out about something that is a more like a needy thing or working together or you're an executive that like wants to go help their team come to a different level then you should use the contact form because i think that's a little bit more of an involved conversation than watching a talk or or um you know taking an online course Awesome. Awesome. folks. We'll put the uh, the link in the show notes. Thank you, Tom, for coming on to Soul Talk and just sharing your soul and your heart and wisdom with, with everyone listening in. It's been a great conversation, folks. So hopefully you also took some notes. I have 
full pages of notes I'm going to be reviewing and marinating on possibility and identity. Uh, also, send me an email. Let me know uh, your key takeaways from today's conversation with Tom Chi. Uh, Coop Blackson at coopblackson.com. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, and also let me know if there's any thoughts, ideas, input. If there's anyone you'd like to see on the show, let me know as well. I look forward to connecting with you in the next episode of Soul Talk. Much love, everyone. Big hugs. If you've enjoyed this episode of Soul Talk, please do share the podcast with all of your friends. Let everyone know and make sure you download Soul Talk today. I'm looking forward to next week where I'll get to share more inspiration with you. Meanwhile, follow me on Facebook, Instagram, or social media. You can find out more about my work at www.coopblackson.com. If you feel ready to take your life to the next level, join me at my exclusive event in Bali, www.boundlessblissbali.com, where you can find out more and apply. Also, make sure to remember to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment at coopblackson.com. Sending you all big hugs and love now.